So I was watching the news this week, the nightly news. And as I watched, I try not to watch it too often, but as I watched, I have to share with you some things going on so that you're aware of them. You guys ready? This is very important stuff you need to be aware of. The government shut down. That means it's really, really, really bad, and you should be really, really, really nervous. There's this thing called the debt ceiling that is approaching. Uh, no one really can explain what it is, but we may all die if this happens, and I want you all to be freaking out a little bit about this. We, um, it means we default on our loans, and, and unspeakable horrors are going to happen. So I want you to be stressing about that a little. Um, not only that, the economy is going to fall apart completely. At some point in the future, no one knows all these bubbles are going to burst. You're all going to lose all of your money and maybe even have to live on the streets with no running water. So Dan's halfway there. There are fires burning in certain parts of the country. There are floods erupting. There are civil wars around the world. There are massive bees attacking people. Did you hear about this? The size of people's thumbs in China. They, and they're killing people. They, they're venom. like they, It eats at the, the skin and deteriorates it. <coughs> There are children being abducted, there are angry bikers attacking motorists, and then we went to commercial breaks, so that was the first 10 minutes. So I want you all to freak out, because it's really, really bad out there, and we're all going to die, and until we die, it's going to be really, really, really bad, okay? You good? Okay, that's all I wanted to share with you today. Have a good week. Now, the news is, is sensationalized. You know that. That's how they get you to watch. They, they pick really scary things, and they sensationalize them out a bit. And um, they hop from one to the other, and it happens all the time. Remember, we're all going to die from swine flu, and then SARS, and then sharks attacking. And you watch the news, it's, we'll survive. But take it into your own home. We all have troubles and difficulties, don't we? Uh, regularly and often, they can be financial, relational, physical, emotional, vocational, and on and on and on. And they're not even sensationalized in your own life, they're real. We deal with lots of trouble. We deal with, with lots of uh, uncertainty. And, and the risk is that we can end up feeling hopeless, helpless, and life starts to look a little pointless. Why am I here? What am I doing? Where am I going? Now, maybe none of you ever have these problems and difficulties in life. If not, you're crazy because Jesus promised in this world you will have trouble. He said something else at the end of that verse I imagine we'll get to at some point. I was thinking about this. As I was looking at Acts 20, just 20 verse 17 through 23, 35. Now, if you're paying attention, something weird just happened there because I referenced it a lot, and we've been going through small chunks. Well, I was reading the last eight chapters because we're coming into the end of Acts, and as I was reading them and thinking about them, I saw a common flow in this section that really dealt with what all of us go through all the time. And the issue is, how do you get through life without feeling hopeless, helpless, pointless, even as a Christian? And Paul gives us an example of how and shows us the why. I'll unpack that for you. So we're not going to read the entirety of this section, but we are going to start in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Last week, remember, we, we talked about um, Eutychus rising from the dead. Anybody remember that? Yeah, everyone here fell asleep. Eutychus, he, he died. Paul was um, having an all-night service. We talked about how the problem with the early church wasn't getting people in the door. It was getting them out of the door once we got in. We'll deal with that problem at some point down the road. Um, we move on from there, and Paul is, is leaving. He's beginning his trip back to Jerusalem. And in 20, verse 17, he begins to speak to the leaders of the Ephesian church. 
he tells, gives him his, his, parting, uh, his parting speech. And it's a really great one. And it's where I was planning on being this week. Uh, but I'll highlight it for you and encourage you to read it. Because it applies not just to the leaders of the church of Ephesus, but to anyone who's a leader. And you're a leader if you're in charge, you're entrusted with the care of anybody else. So if you have kids, if you have people that you interact with in your life, if you have people that work for you, if you basically breathe air and know anyone, you qualify as a degree as someone entrusted with the care of someone else. And Paul gives them certain commands. He, he, he warns them to beware of false teachers, to watch how they live, to watch how those they're entrusted with live their lives, to read, meditate, and study God's word, and to be diligent in prayer. Those are some principles that we'd all be well served and suited to apply to our lives. Then Paul leaves there and he begins his journey back to Jerusalem as we get into chapter 21. And on the way in Caesarea, he meets a guy named Agabus. I don't know why people don't name their kids Agabus anymore. I'm assuming they'll come back at some point in the next 10 or 20 years. You can call him Aggie, Bus, you know, anything you like. It's a great name that we've, we've kind of lost track of. And I want to talk about that name, not really. Agabus was a prophet. He said to Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, watch what happens. He took a belt, tied, Paul up, tied himself up in the belt said, this is what awaits you. So all the believers with Paul go, no, don't go, don't go, Paul. They're going to tie you up and throw you in jail. Don't go, don't go. And Paul says, I'm going to go. Actually, what Paul said, it's found in 21.13. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then off he goes. He arrives in Jerusalem. When we get to 21.17, everything's going swimmingly. He's in the temple. He is going through a ritual cleansing process. And then we get to 2127. It says, when the seven days were almost completed, those are the seven days of this ritual cleansing Paul was going through, the Jews from Asia, remember those Jews from Asia over the previous couple months, the ones who stoned Paul, beat Paul, imprisoned Paul, chased Paul, lied about Paul, wanted to do damage to Paul? Well, somehow they caught up to him, some of them, at the temple. They see him in the temple, and they stirred up the whole crowd. And they laid hands on him, not in the uh, biblical sense, more in the physical sense when it says laid hands on him. Crying out, men of Israel, help! This is a man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up. And the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, pause. So Paul's in the temple, doing absolutely nothing wrong. And these Asian Jews who hate God, they're spreading lies about Paul. And they fire up this whole crowd. And the crowd starts beating Paul almost to the point of death. I'll show you that in a second. They drag him out. They start beating him based on false accusations. He did nothing wrong, right? Well, then what happens here is word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. So still another false accusation. You know, he's here, all of Jerusalem, and not all of Jerusalem, just a crazy crowd, but they let him know things aren't going well. Well, the cohort's job was simply to keep the peace. He kept the peace so he could keep his life, right? The emperor demanded he keep the peace in Jerusalem. If he didn't keep the peace, they'd kill him, and they'd just replace him. So this was a big deal to the cohort, a big deal to the crowd. Paul's kind of stuck in the middle. So there's confusion, there's a riot. 
So he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, to where this is going on. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Paul could say, oh, finally I'm safe, but not quite yet. The tribune came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. False accusations. He got beaten almost to the point of death. Now he's getting arrested. He's going to be thrown in jail. He still hasn't done anything wrong. The guy inquired who Paul was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. He couldn't learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he, actually he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. He was really, really, really hurt. For the mob of the people followed crying away with him. All right. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. You're not doing anything wrong. People start spreading false accusations about you. You get beaten up almost to the point of death. Then the authorities come. And because you got beaten up to the point of death, they're going to arrest you. What do you do? You know? Sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God, right? What do you do? People are spreading lies about you, screwing you over, beating you up physically, and you get thrown into jail for doing absolutely nothing wrong. I think the options are freak out, cry, curl up, or yell for an attorney. Are those the basic four options? Imagine you're in that situation. What would you do? How would you respond? It's not fair. We hear that in my house all the time. It's not fair. It's not fair. Well, it wasn't fair to Paul, was it? You know, Paul didn't just get the smaller half of the donut. Paul got beat up, imprisoned. This keeps happening to him, right? This isn't a new thing. If I were Paul, I think I might go, God, it's not fair. I'm trying to do the right thing. Don't you love me? It's not fair. I would never say something like that out loud. I do that in my head. So things aren't going so well for Paul. We're going to skip a section here. We'll come back to it. Paul ends up speaking to this crowd, and we'll look at that in a second. That's what I'm speaking of. But if you run ahead up to verse um, 24, okay, so after Paul spoke to this crowd, and we'll talk about what he said in a minute, the crowd got fired up again because he used the G word. Do you know what the G word is? Very good, Renee. So because he used the G word, they got fired up. So the tribune says, get him in the barracks and let's whip him. I want to know what's going on. So again, he did nothing wrong. Beaten, imprisoned, now they're going to whip him. And this isn't just like the old rodeo whip, which I'm sure would really immensely hurt. This was the whip of the lictor. It was like cat of nine tails. You know, the whip with the shards of, of metal and bone on it. It's rip you open. And Paul had been whipped before. At this point, you freak out. You go into some sort of catatonic state. You just can't take, God, I've done. It's more than I can handle. But not Paul. Paul actually still has his wits about him. It doesn't say, and Paul broke down, broke down in sobbing, and great tears fell from his face as he said, please, Elector, don't hurt me. I beg you, please don't hurt me. You are all powerful, and I plead for your mercy. No. He says, uh, <clears throat> before you hit me, I'm a Roman citizen. Is that legal for you to whip me? He's thinking straight. Yeah. That'd be something I'd remember after the whipping. Like, oh, shoot, I'm a Roman citizen. I didn't have to. Paul's got his wits about him. So they don't beat him, but things don't get better for Paul. The tribune says, well, what now? I got to know what's going on. So in verse 30, on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, this is talking about the, the, the Roman cohort, 
He unbound him, Paul, and commanded the chief priests and all the councils to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. He brought him to the Jewish Supreme Court. So what do we have? We have a beating, we have an imprisonment, we have almost another beating, an attempted whipping. He goes to the Supreme Court, and he gets punched in the face. It's in the next two verses. If you don't believe me, you could read ahead. Now, this is the question I want to ask you. How are you doing at this point if you're Paul? I mean, are you just so thankful that you know God and, and that God's in control of all things and you have peace that transcends all understanding and no worries at all in life because life is wonderful? Well, something else happens here. Just when you think it can't get any worse, Paul gets stuck back in prison and a plot comes about to kill him. Verse 12 of chapter 23. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we've strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed him. All right, now, in all seriousness, how did Paul survive this emotionally? How would you, how would you hold up emotionally? You got troubles, right? If I was in your shoes, Dan, I won't speak for you, but if the water went out in my house, that's a big deal. And I'm going to gripe. I'm going to grumble a little bit. God, it's Sunday stinking morning. And the nerve of you to cut my water on Sunday morning, come on. How do you expect me to get to church and get ready on Sunday? You know what, God? All right, if we're going to play a game, you cut my water. I'm not going to church. Right? That's just water. It's not like... God, if I get beaten up one more time by an angry mob, you know, if I get stoned, oh, just one more time, if, if you put me in a shipwreck, hang on, we'll get there in a couple weeks, why doesn't Paul get angry with God? Do you know what Paul does during all this? I skipped a couple sections if you were following along. The crowd, they beat him, he's on the steps going into prison. I skipped a section there, you know what he did? He found an opportunity to present the gospel. To a group of people that tried to kill him. If a group of people tries to kill me, my first inclination isn't to offer them forgiveness, the, the forgiveness that God offers through Christ. It's to pray that God would smote them, you know? God, this person cut me off in traffic. Would you kill him with flames of fire? You know, these people physically tried to kill Paul, and his response isn't rage. His response is grace and mercy. Do you know why? Because Paul used to lead that angry mob. Paul was the chief of all sinners. Paul wanted followers of Christ dead, and he led the charge. So he looked at those people not as enemies of his. He looked at them as no different than he was, except for the work of Christ. Do you see that? Is that how you see people? Or do you see them as inconveniences that run into you? Do you have a list, like, people I'd like to see in heaven? People I'm fine with going to hell. You know? One list longer than the other. Well, God has a list of people I'd like to see in heaven and people I'd like to see in hell. And one is rather sparse and one is very full, but that is not the same as the actual roster of heaven and hell. When you look at people, do you look at them for what they've done to you or do you look at them how God sees them? Do you, do you look at them with love or do you look at them with pride and, and a lack of humility, selfishness? Well, Paul looked at them a little differently and he goes through and he tells about, in 22, who he was, how he came to know Christ. He recaps Acts chapter 9, the Damascus Road experience. 
he declares to them who God is, what God has done, and then how he was to go to the Gentiles. That made them a little mad. Well, he goes to the Supreme Court, and he declares his hope in the resurrection of the dead. He's smart with that move. He splits the Pharisees and the Sadducees there, but he's still looking to declare the work of Christ, forgiveness through Christ. And then he's about to die in this, in this terrorist plot, but he doesn't freak out because there's something I see in verse 11 of chapter 23. Anybody there? Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Just that one. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified about me at Jerusalem, so you must bear witness also at Rome. So God told Paul he's going where? Going to Rome. The, the mob told Paul he's going where? Dead. Who did Paul believe? See, the plot to kill him didn't scare him because God said, You're going to Rome. Circumstances says you're going to die. Paul says, Well, circumstances. God, who do you believe? Who do you believe in life? Circumstances or God? Situations or promises of God? Stop and think about that. Do you ever feel hopeless, helpless, or life is pointless? That means you believe the circumstances and situations of life. Are you able to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances? Well, see, that means that you actually believe God. You follow me here? Paul, if you, we've known Paul for a while now. Paul never freaked out. Paul got worn out, but Paul never freaked out. And the reason Paul never freaked out, the reason Paul never felt hopeless or helpless or pointless was because Paul knew the person of God, the power of God, and the promises of God. He didn't know facts about God. He was like, well, hey, I was raised under Gamaliel, and I know much information about God. What accent was that? That was like some weird French-Italian thing, wasn't it? I was really sorry. I apologize. I have to go with the British accent for biblical characters. He didn't say, you know, I, I know, I know theology well, and my intellect helps me to have peace. Well, no, that doesn't work. You need to know facts about God to know God, but facts about God doesn't equate with knowing God. See, God knew God well. When I was a little kid, I knew my dad. I still know him now, but as a little kid... It was not just knowing facts about him, it was knowing him well, knowing his heart that could give me comfort. Well, I didn't have to be afraid when I went down into the dark basement if he went with me. Our basement was scary. It, it, was, it was safe because my dad was with me, not just facts, but the person. Well, God says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Well, guess what you don't have to be if you truly know God. You don't have to be afraid. Paul wasn't afraid. Because he knew God. He knew the power of God. He knew the promises of God. Look at this plot. Circumstances, you're going to die. God, you're going to roam. Who's going to be right? Now, this is a, a 40 people have had not to eat until Paul's dead. The Romans don't mind if he dies. The Jews, they want him dead. Paul's in prison. How's he going to get out of this? Well, a little kid comes along, a nephew of Paul. It says here, verse 16, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Well, no, whoa, whoa. God, come on, man, shake the prison, send an angel, bring an army. You're going to use some little kid to save Paul. Kind of funny, isn't it? Kind of how God works. He takes what's weak and powerless in the eyes of the world and uses it. And circumstances are adjusted so that 472 bodyguards go with Paul. Look at verse 23. 
the guy this, he calls the centurions and says, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea. You do the math on that. That's 200 and 270 and the two leaders, 472. A little bit of overkill for these 40 Jews, but Paul's getting to Caesarea. Why didn't Paul go all the way to Rome with this bodyguard? Oh, God had better plans than that. It wasn't the bodyguard keeping him safe. It was God. You see that, don't you? The kid broke the plot. The Romans, the enemies of God, got God's person safely to Caesarea. And oh, wait till you see the rest of the journey to Rome. God loved Paul way too much to let him get off that simply. He wanted to show him how much he loved him and how in control of all things he truly was. You see that? It was never out of control. It was fully in God's control. I was uh, reading a book. Technically, if you're listening to it, can you say you were reading it? I was listening to a book that just still doesn't sound right. Um, I have never read a book by this author. Her name is Beth Moore. Anybody ever read a Beth Moore book? Never read one before. Listen to it. This one, it was called um, Believe in God. It was pretty good. As I was working on this, it struck me as I'm looking at the text, hey, well, she had this, this thing she, she does with her hand, which I, which I thought was pretty good. It's the one thing I really took out of the book that stuck with me. And, and look at this, because it's what Paul did. She does it with, with her fingers. You can use fingers if you want, but it's four things you really got to remember well. God is who he says he is. Now, how do you know who God says he is? You know? So if you don't know this, it's going to be hard to know what he says. You know, you could say, well, I think he says that nobody would go to hell. Well, is that what he says? I have to know what he says to know what he says. But God is who he says he is. God will do what he says he will do. The next two, you are who God says you are. And you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. God is who he says he is. God will do what he says he will do. You are who God says you are. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Who does God say he is? I think that's one of the biggest problems, Christian or non-Christian, that we have. We frankly don't know. We've never really looked. Well, who is God? You know, I, I know God is love. What the heck does that mean? God's all-powerful. Well, what does that mean? He's sovereign. He's omnipotent, omniscient, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What if we slowed down and looked and saw who God really says he is? Well, what does God say he'll do? You know what we call those? Promises of God. You see, God never breaks his promise. God always does what he says he will do. If God says you can have ice cream at three, you'll have ice cream at three. God doesn't make promises quite like that. That would be awesome, though. If you love me, I will give you ice cream at three and chocolate cake at five. People will be coming all over the place to church. God has better things than that in mind. God gives us many promises throughout the Bible. Many. Hundreds and hundreds. How many of them can you, can you name off the top of your head? Think about that. Why does he give us promises? Because he wanted to make this a long, long book. No, because we need him. He doesn't want us to be hopeless and helpless and feel pointless and not know who he is and what he's doing and be thrown about by the circumstances and situations of life. He wants us to build our house upon the rock, right? He gives some promises to all people. Psalm 1. You know what Psalm 1 says? You probably know the first couple of verses. Blessed is the man who walks. Well, can I? <laughs> Diane. Can I also go with this verse that I read? Sinners must seek 
Well, I'm curious to see if you'll make it to where I'm going. Impressive. Well, now I heard some promises in there. Blessed is a man, that means full, full of joy. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. But you drop down to verse 5. Here is a promise made to all of us before we knew Christ. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What does that mean? That's a promise. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. We're all going to face a judgment one day, right? Whether you like it or not. The wicked won't stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That's a promise God made to all of us, because he loved us. He didn't have to tell it to us until we died, but he told it to us while we lived, right? And if the Bible ended there, it would really stink, and I would encourage you not to read it, but it doesn't, because all throughout you see more promises. Acts 2, verse 21. You know that one? I'd be really impressed if someone could just quote that one off the top of their head. Once you hear it, you'll know it. Acts 2.21 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if you walk around going, Lord, 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 right? That's what it means? No. Probably there are some people that will try that. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I am who I say I am. I will do what I say I will do. And if you are separated from me by sin, you will not pass through the judgment. You will be found guilty and separated from me forever. The question simply is, do you believe that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do? Or no? It doesn't change truth. It just changes what you want to believe. God says, why does he say, turn to me and be saved? Why does it say that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved? See, that's called grace and mercy. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. Nothing you do to, to, to merit it. It's just a gift. It's an undeserved gift. And once you take that gift, well, then the promises start getting really fancy. I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. God uses all things for the good of those who love him. You know why your water went out? For your good and his glory. You know why Lloyd is struggling with, it, with his um, dementia? For your good and God's glory. Do you know why Tim is going through his sickness? For God's glory and his good if he loves him. How, how could a loving God allow a, a father with a wife to get sick like that, an older man to deal with dementia, a family of, of six to have no water? I mean, now that, right? <laughs> Pam to go through her sickness and then die for his glory and the good of those who love him. Now, how do you know that he means what he says he means? Well, you've got to know who he is. Paul knew who he was. Paul knew he deserved death. But what did God give him? Life. He was an enemy of God who, who persecuted to the point of death children of God. And God forgave him because Paul was really, really sorry? No. Because he loved Paul and he took the punishment due Paul on the cross. Right? 
So see, Paul didn't get so mad at the angry crowd because he got punched in the face. Paul delighted that he got punched in the face because he was identified with Christ. Because he knew who God was. He knew that God was who he said he was. God would do what he said he will do. That he was who God said he was. And that he could do all things through Christ who strengthened him. Well, Paul memorized scripture. It was part of his training. He didn't know the New Testament. So think about that. You knew more scripture than Paul at, at, at certain ages. I think he knows it now, though. But I wonder if one of the verses that kept running through Paul's mind was Psalm 46, 1 through 3. As he's sitting there getting repetitively punched in the face, stoned, uh, imprisoned, eventually shipwrecked. You know what Psalm 46 says? 1 through 3? You will in a minute. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. When things go crazy, the modern English translation, when things go crazy, when the economy falls apart and the bumblebees attack all mankind and the rivers overflow and the fires break out, when, when life seems to be falling apart and the rest of the world goes, ah, don't freak out. When in your life things start to go really bad, when you don't understand what's going on, when you wonder how you're going to pay the bills or why you have no friends or why people turn their backs on you or why your job doesn't go well or, or why your children go crazy or, or whatever, you have two options. Freak out, fake it till you make it, right, Renee? Or believe that God is who he says he is, will do what he says he will do. That you are who God says you are and that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You see, if God really is who he says he is, your water couldn't have gone out unless he allowed it to go out. Now, if he's cruel, well, he's still God, but he's not cruel. He's perfectly loving. I probably wouldn't make the water go out if I was God, but his ways aren't our ways, are they? Nor his thoughts are thoughts. They're far above. Well, as we go through life, this is what I see here. All of us will deal with this until the day we die. We have a choice of believing God or believing the circumstances that surround us. It's going to go really, 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 really bad. Or, no, it's not. It's going absolutely perfectly. Not swimmingly, but perfectly. And you wouldn't change a thing. If God picks you up, and that's what a lot of these promises are, he picks us up out of the crowd to give us a glimpse, not only of himself, but where we are and where we're going. He says, look at me. I love you. If I was willing to die for you, do you really think I'm going to destroy you now? If we've been reconciled by the grace of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled, right? What he's saying is, look, guys, I love you more than you can comprehend. I will take perfect care of you. I am in control of all things. Just calm down. Relax. Be still and know that I'm God. Let me tell you a story, God says. There were some guys in a boat in a storm and another guy sleeping in the front and the guy sleeping in the front claimed to be God and the storm ravaged and the waves came over and the guys freaked out we're gonna die wake up Jesus Jesus woke up he said y'all calm down be still and immediately the waters grew calm Jesus says guys I am who I say I am I will do what I say I will do you are who I say you are, and you can do all things through me who gives you strength. 
Do you understand the privilege you sit in as a child of God? You're not an enemy of God. You're a friend of God. You're not separated from God. You're reconciled to God. He will use all things for your good. Now, there are two types of grace out there. There's common grace and specific grace. God is good in some ways to all people. But God is good to some people in all ways. You follow me there? Even in this time we live, God is good to all people. The most wicked enemy of God in this world, he is good to. Think of the most wicked human being that you, you, you don't have to know them well but know about. The fact that they can draw breath means that God is good to them in some way. The fact that they receive, receive sunlight so, so that their skin can function, he's good in some way. The fact that they receive food, that God is good to all people at least in some way because he gives all people a chance to turn to him and be saved. But he's good to some people in all ways. Though some people are his children. As a follower of Christ, God is good to you in every way at every time, by all means, for his glory and your good. There is nothing that happens in your life that you would desire to change if you had God's perspective. Renee, I would venture today, if we could make a phone call to Pam, she would say, oh, guys, no, no, no. I wish you didn't pray for me to get better. I would have liked this to happen quicker. I'm glad it took as long as it did because now I see what God was up to a little more fully. But you know what? I'm thanking God that he let me go through this sickness. We sit here on this side go, you are out of your stinking mind. And she says, no, actually, you're out of your mind because mine works well. You would think, God, you don't have to give Lloyd dementia. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's, it's, it's a shell of the guy you used to know. You, you, Corinne, she, she watches and she deals with these difficulties of, of a Lloyd who's not really Lloyd. You have to deal with a Lloyd who's not really Lloyd. Why? Lloyd has to suffer through it. Why, God? Well, on the other side, you know what you get to say? Wow, God, I struggled with trusting you. I get it now. Thanks. I didn't get it at all then, but I get it now. If you don't know God, guess what? You have zero hope. You, you, you have to live in a fabricated world of suppression, distraction, and distortion. That's all you got. Well, I, I think the God I believe in, what, you know what? You, you're, you're making up stories. And deep down, if you stop and think about it, there's no hope. But the God who is, the hope that we really have, and hope is a certainty. Here's a problem we have, guys. We don't always believe it or live like it. So the world looks at us, and you know what they see? We're freaking out right alongside them. Oh, my God, the debt ceiling. Okay, worst case scenario. The whole economy crumbles. We're all living in the streets, and we all have no money. What's the worst thing that happens? Absolute worst thing that happens. Gosh, I hope we don't find out. What's the worst thing that happens? You starve to death and die. Well, I know two things. I know where I'm going, and I know who's in control of all the chaos that takes place. My options are to freak out with everybody else or to fear not. And you want to know what really happens on the inside of a true, transparent believer? You freak out a little bit. And then you pray that God would empower you to trust him more fully. You see, God doesn't make you perfect. Paul wasn't perfect. I'm sure inside, when Paul was being beaten, he was thinking, oh, man, please stop. Please stop. God, what's going on? But then the Holy Spirit would give him a sense of sanity and allowed him to stand up and seek an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. You see what he said back there? What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. Paul's greatest desire that he would finish the course God had sent out for him, which was for his good and God's glory. So my challenge to, to you all this week, to me this week, and every week from here on out, is to ask yourselves, do you believe that God is who he says he is? 
Not who you say he is, not who you think he is, but who he says he is. Do you believe God will do what he says he will do? Are you calling God a liar if you don't? Do you believe that you are who God says you are? No matter where you stand, do you believe God is that you are who God says you are? And do you truly believe as a Christian that you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength? That's what we all need to deal with every single day. We need to think about that. Because I got news for you. When you wake up, things start to go bad. Isn't that how a day goes? You wake up, you have about four-tenths of a second. Where you don't realize certain parts of your body ache, that you didn't get enough sleep, and that, you know, something has to be addressed. You got that four-tenths of a second, like, euphoric feeling. And then it starts to all go crazy. Well, you can freak out, get, get all crazy, lose your mind, get angry, sad, depressed, discouraged, or you can stop and say, okay, wait a minute. If God is who he says he is, and God will do what he says he will do, that means he's in control of the day, and I'm living for his glory, not mine. So, okay, let's start addressing these situations that come up with the right mind for, for his glory, trusting he's in control. And as you walk further into the day, and you start to see things come out that make you afraid, you believe God will do what he says he will do. Fear not, I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I'll help you, I'll uphold you with my righteous hand. Do you say, no, God, you don't understand? Or do you say, okay, I'll trust you on that. And you walk in trust and obedience. Then do you believe that you are who God says you are, that, that he has his eye upon you, that even the hair on your head are all numbered, that he's never going to leave you nor forsake you, that he loves you beyond your ability to comprehend and he's taking perfect care of you? Or do you actually think he forgot about you and he left you to rot in a pit of despair? And when you get to heaven, he's going to be like, gosh, I am so sorry. I, 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 I forgot. I don't know what else to say. There are like six billion people on the planet of the earth, and, and, and you kind of fell through the cracks. Which do you believe? See, that doesn't happen. And that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. If you trust, if you obey, you will be blessed. You know what blessed means? You have to pronounce it blessed. You know what it means? It means that all the desires of your heart are going to be surpassed. That's our job. Four fingers. I think Beth Moore has a thumb at the end, and the thumb is um, the word of God is living and active. But I like the first four. I mean, I agree with that. It's biblical. God is who he says he is. God will do what he says he will do. You are who God says you are. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Try it out. Watch the evening news. See how you do. Actually, you know what? Skip the evening news. Read your Bible for 30 minutes. You'll do better. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the fact that you, even though unknowable, have chosen to make yourself known. That for us, while we were still sinners, we were reconciled to God by the grace of his Son. I thank you, God, that you love us not because of what we can do, not because of what we have done, but despite, in spite of all those things, that none of us have ever worked our way into a right relationship with you. That while all other religions of the world put people in a pit and put the onus on the person to climb out of the pit, through faith in Christ we recognize that we can't get out of the pit. But you came down into the pit. You became one of us. And through your work on the cross, you carry us out of the pit to bring us to your side forevermore. God, I pray we would more fully know who you are. That we would be more attentive to hearing what you have to say about who you are and the promises that you make to us. I pray that you would empower us to trust you, to obey you, and have the joy that you desire for us. 
You didn't come to give us a get-out-of-hell-free card, God. You came so that we could have eternal life, so that we could know you, not just about you, but we could know you, we could live in a relationship with you, and then you entrust us this wonderful gift of being able to go out and declare that the perfect Heavenly Father is still adopting for all who will turn to him and be saved. God, for those words to, to uh, have credibility as they pass through our lips, however, it means that we need to be walking like we believe it. We're not called to go out and just share facts that we don't really uh, walk in obedience to. Your power flows through us as we walk in obedience, as we trust in you, and at times that's through repenting through our trip-ups. But I pray you would build us into a people who truly do believe you are who you say you are, that you will do what you say you will do, who can rejoice in the fact that we are who you say we are, and that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. It's in his name we pray. Amen.